Hello, my name is Megan Salmon and welcome to my podcast I call Perceptions of Black Motherhood, contextualizing images of the 1980s crack mother with the contemporary victim hero mother. The so-called crack mother of the 1980s has been a long-standing icon in American culture. Sometimes she's simply the butt of the joke, and others, she's blamed for the collapse of the entire black community. How could she possibly relate to black mothers that we see on the news today, sobbing about their children lost from police brutality, and so powerful as the center of the contemporary Black Lives Matter movement? I think that these women have to relate in some way, as they remind us how lived experiences of trauma shape real-life tropes of black motherhood in America. I've found that the images of these women are linked by a unifying theme that shapes mainstream, by which I mean white and middle class, perceptions of black women. Their bodies are not viewed as their own. For both the crack mother and the victim hero mother characters, their bodies are often viewed by media and state agencies as vehicles for another doomed generation of black children that will continue the cycle of tragedy and suffering. However, these images of black women differ in their relationships with innocence and criminality and what they represent for the black community. In this podcast, I will be examining the similarities and differences between the iconic images of black motherhood to bring a more nuanced understanding to how we view black motherhood in the United States. To do this, I will first examine the history of crack cocaine to give a historical context to black motherhood of the 1980s while linking it to the emergence of the crack mother character and her relationship with victimhood and objection. This will also set the scene for how we regard black mothers today. Then I will trace historical characterizations of black women and mothers. Finally, I will compare this image with contemporary images of black motherhood to clarify their relationship, specifically with criminality. I will highlight the problematic ways in which we understand black womanhood and how these understandings translate into different tropes. I would also like to add that I will never comprehend the immense pain and trauma that any of the women in either era have faced. I want to emphasize that in this podcast, I am examining the characterizations and conceptualizations that exist in America of these women, which is not anywhere near the same thing as their actual experiences. This podcast is about perceptions. I hope that this podcast will make us rethink how we portray Black women and mothers in the media, and why we refuse to understand them as autonomous bodies with their own truths that we can all learn from if we start to listen. Since crack cocaine first appeared in New York City, it has crossed all racial barriers and affected communities from coast to coast. This is it, crack cocaine. To users, crack is the ultimate high. To drug counselors, the ultimate obstacle. It's one of the most addictive drugs ever. Today, our prisons are jammed with crack users. Our courts backlogged with their cases. Families have been shattered, lives lost, and a whole new generation is growing up in crack shadow. In this first section, I want to give a material history to the introduction of cocaine into the United States, as well as an analysis of rock cocaine's role in the development of urban communities. I interviewed Dr. Sidney Silverstein, an anthropologist currently working at the Center for Interventions, Treatment, and Addictions Research at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, to help give a clear picture of the history of cocaine in the United States. My name is Sydney Silverstein, and I'm an assistant professor at the Center for Interventions, uh, Interventions Treatment, and Addictions Research at Wright State uh, University Blunchoff School of Medicine. So I'm affiliated with the Department of Population and Public Health Sciences, but most of my work is through the center. Cocaine was not always an illicit drug in the United States. It began as a common pain treatment or even a luxury beverage, most iconically appearing in Coca-Cola. So pharmaceutical grade cocaine began being developed in the maybe sort of mid to late 1800s and got pretty popular, um, mostly in Europe, but also in the United States. So you could buy it legally as a pharmaceutical. And then it also was sold in a whole variety of like beverages. Um, Coca-Cola, obviously, there was like a coca infused wine that was really popular called Vin Mariani. Um, 
And so, you know, it was sort of widely enjoyed and touted for a whole host of pharmaceutical properties. It wasn't until the drug was racialized by white supremacists because it was said to make black people, especially black men, dangerous and crazy that it became stigmatized. Cocaine um, similarly had, you know, in the early days, um, it was, again, mostly used by white women, um, kind of middle class women or whatever was closest to middle class in that era. Um, but a lot of the kind of fear mongering was um, around people of color, you know, black folks in the South saying like, you know, this is a drug that sort of empowers black men to do crazy things and it's a dangerous and it's a menace. And so, um, you know, all throughout this time, there was actually like, you know, this sort of fear mongering discourse was happening. Certain politicians were really touting it again. It was, in fact, widely used by black people in the early 20th century as a way to aid their workflow and alleviate their pain. Many black people were still sharecroppers and needed a boost of energy, so they used cocaine. Others used it as a replacement for opiates, as black people did not have the same access to pain medication as whites due to poor medical care. In his book, Crack, Rock Cocaine, Street Capitalism, and the Decade of Greed, David Farber contends that, quote, for African Americans in the Jim Crow South of the early 20th century, men and women who were forced to appear subservient before whites under the threat of violent reprisals, cocaine was a dangerous drug. Cocaine made it more difficult to wear the public mask of subservience. Like other alkaloids, it made people less amenable to the social conventions and social hierarchies that regulate everyday life. Black people on cocaine, at least some of them, did challenge the racial hierarchy. Whites who pointed out that fact were racist, but they were not wrong. From the get-go, it was clear that cocaine contributed to this idea that black people were dangerous, unhinged, and violent. Cocaine tends to make a person more confident and upbeat. This opposed the image of a docile black man who keeps his head down and obeys white society. Confidence, and thereby cocaine, was an inherent contradiction to the racial hierarchy that white society needed to survive. By 1922, the Prohibition era had begun. This was stacked on top of the stigmatization and racialization of cocaine, and as a result, usage declined for a bit. In this way, cocaine was, to the black community, a politics of resistance. It became a way to mitigate pain caused by systemic racism when systemic racism denied access to healthcare to treat that pain. Black people did not have the agency to resist authority directly, and by treating their pain with a drug that was prohibited, they were inherently resisting the authority of a racist system in their own indirect way, even if that was not the intention of the cocaine use. At the same time cocaine was experiencing these new legal developments, welfare was also taking shape in the legal system. In 1935, Aid to Child Development, otherwise known as ADC, was created in conjunction with the Social Security Act to give assistance to blameless single mothers who met the moral standards of proper motherhood. The intention was to provide them a sufficient income so that they didn't have to worry about working to mitigate the income loss from the absence of their husbands and could continue to focus on childcare. This usually resulted in mothers who fit the white middle-class notions of proper motherhood receiving aid. Pramila Nadasen explained that, quote, White women, most of whom were widows or deserted by their husbands, overwhelmingly populated the welfare roles in the late 1930s. A majority of needy African-American women were denied access, especially in the South and other areas where large numbers of African-Americans lived. That's from page 55. In the following years, restrictions on welfare only grew to fit the perfect white middle-class model of a mother. New restrictions in the 1940s and 50s on suitable homes and illegitimate children and immoral substitute fathers who were not paternal fathers but were in various types of relationships with the mothers further excluded black women from receiving welfare. Restrictive laws were aimed primarily at black mothers because they had a long history of labor outside of the household and there was a refusal to recognize their value any further than a supply of laborers in the workforce. According to Nadasen, Quote, black women's status as welfare recipients was bound up with their relationship to the labor market. More often seen as laborers than as mothers, black women were considered less deserving of public assistance than other women, from page 56. The overarching theme was that black motherhood did not exist from a societal perspective. 
In its place existed black women's labor for a capitalist system. By the 1950s and 60s, the percentage of black women on welfare grew and took public concern about welfare recipients along with it. The demographics of welfare recipients grew to be less white and less widowed and more single-mothered. White women had the resources to hide their pregnancies through birthing homes, adoption, and other healthcare resources. Black women lacked access to these resources and were often left with no choice but to raise their children on welfare and, in the public eye, at much higher rates. This furthered white panic as the black mothers on welfare were increasingly visible to white society. Thus, the racialized image of the welfare queen began to take shape. This icon will be further analyzed in a coming section, but in the historical analysis of cocaine, it is important to contextualize the welfare experience of black women. In the 70s, cocaine entered its era of glamorization. After the hippie, anti-Vietnam era of the 1960s, counterculture movements experimented with a drug that would offer a looser, captivating feeling of a flashy, lavish life. So then after that is kind of, that's right coincides with, you know, the kind of when cocaine starts to boom in the U.S., the kind of uptick in consumption when it becomes like, you know, so the 60s were this, you know, decade of social protests and lots of use of like marijuana and psychedelics and speaking out against the Vietnam War and civil rights and like kind of activism. And then, you know, they sort of characterize like the 70s as a bit of a pushback and more slightly more like hedonistic party disco. As a result, cocaine reemerged in popularity. This connection to glamour and lavishness created a high demand that drove up the price so that the drug was often only available to rich white people switching the demographics of the drug usage. The industry of cocaine sales itself also became a significantly more violent industry as the stake in price rose. At the same time, many people were making crack for personal use, but it was nowhere near as popularized and certainly not a business. Freebasing was a popular way of consuming cocaine before crack, although it was stigmatized after Richard Pryor's infamous stint with freebased cocaine. The roots of commercialization for crack are quite murky, but sales certainly blew up in the 1980s as it was an easy startup that required little technical knowledge and a low buy-in. They figured out, you know, um, you can kind of take, so this process of creating cocaine, you have these things called the uh, raw cocaine paste, which in itself can be smoked, and then it's further processed into cocaine hydrochloride, which is the powder. But then you can add in base compounds, like, you know, baking soda or whatever, and a couple other chemicals, and then cook it back down and to make it like rock up. And that's what crack is. So you can cut it with a bunch of things. So you can kind of extend a small amount of cocaine into a much larger rock of crack, which then you can sell in little like rock. Small pieces. Small pieces um, for a lot of money. So anyone could be a crack dealer. It was incredibly accessible as well as lucrative. As more dealers popped up, they often gave out free samples to hook prospective users, creating more and more addicts. The catch-on for crack was relatively the same as cocaine. It was an easy escape for mundane, hard labor, and this time it was incredibly cheap and accessible. This also made crack an easy job, meaning to sell or to use, for struggling single black mothers on welfare, who were emerging as a larger and larger demographic in urban communities throughout the mid to late 20th century. In this moment, as crack cocaine begins to popularize, black community life and infrastructures are in a fragile state. Black urban poverty was on the rise, and the Moynihan Report, released in 1965, blamed it all on black motherhood, arguing, quote, At the heart of the deterioration of the fabric of Negro society is the deterioration of the Negro family. It is the fundamental source of the weakness of the Negro community, end quote. Black women were removed from welfare roles in droves as a result of new legislation aimed at policing black family structures, which left black communities with no support. As a result, urban centers were often filled with single mother households who did not have the capacity to work due to demanding childcare, but were forced to anyway, with no financial support due to welfare restrictions and a lack of or insufficient healthcare. It was these public infrastructure factors which pushed black communities so deeply into crack dependencies, both physically and economically, as they had no fundamental support from the government in facing poverty. Get 
In the 1980s, crack cocaine reached its peak popularization in the United States. Following Reagan's election, America was in the mood for economic excess, which unfortunately did not trickle down on black communities as advertised. But I mean, I think with sort of back to the anthropology of it, I mean, again, like I think what's been so like distinct about crack is that, you know, economic aspect of it and just the sense that it was different that like, for once, like, like local dealers in the U.S., like small time dealers could also kind of potentially make a lot more money. And so it was really appealing because, you know, if you're selling any other drug, it's like you hope you get a good deal from your supplier and then you bag it up or you cut it with whatever and you try to make money. But if you're like cooking crack, you just you just make a lot more money. So it was really destructive because it had this extremely um, addictive financial quality to it that I think, you know, is so it, it's, you know, it's some people say it's, it's harder to stop selling drugs than it is to stop using drugs because it's like you can just make a lot of money. So crack is like a prime example of that. But there's just something about crack and like the kind of economics of it and, um, you know, the racialization of blame for the problems crack caused that it was just like a, a more profound um a drug that I think like really will kind of it just had a profound effect on the second half of the 20th century, you know, and on just kind of really like laying some of the groundwork for a lot of the problems that we see today. Urban communities became extremely impoverished and the gap widened, not just in wealth, but also in homicide, foster care, low birth weight babies and weapons arrest, just to name a few. Crack devastated black communities as it was cheap and euphoric, but often destroyed the lives of its users as they longed for another fix. People will describe it as just kind of like, um, really takes over your life in a way because it's so, it's such a short high. And so they'll say like, nothing eats up your money like crack. Because if you're using like you, as soon as you, you know, kind of come off it, you feel like shit and you want to get more. And it's like, but it's so short that you're sort of they say like geeking or whatever, like you're constantly trying to figure out, you know, um, kind of where to get money for more. Um. The cycle was unbeatable. More demand for crack meant more street gangs to sell it and more gang violence. More gangs and gang violence meant more young black men and gangs and less education and opportunity to get them out. The high prevalence of women users meant prostitution and unwanted pregnancies. Black women were particularly vulnerable to the effects of the crack epidemic as they often faced gruesome menial labor in order to meet the requirement of being employed to be on welfare, which often led to further exploitation. As Nadasan argues, quote, requiring poor women to enter the world of work would only reinforce the kind of exploitation and oppression that many of them face on a daily basis. Crack provided a quick, cheap escape from these stresses. Crack also had a cyclical effect on black women as many engaged in sex for crack exchanges in order to afford a fix, which often went unprotected and resulted in an unwanted pregnancy, which again, they did not have the resources to take care of properly. These sex for crack exchanges often ended in sexual exploitation, assault, and even rape of black women, which compounded their trauma and led them further into a rock cocaine addiction. Black women in particular were structurally set up to suffer the most extreme consequences of the crack epidemic. The black community was under an extreme and deadly assault by crack cocaine, and more often than not, it was black mothers who took the fall for it. I'm sure this is a, can be slightly problematic as a generalization, but in practice, like it's women who are fighting to get custody back of their kids. I had one male participant who was involved in drug court and trying to, and um, his ex-wife was still using drugs and he was in treatment and trying to get custody. That's one. You know, the only, only, you know, person who identified as male who ever described being involved in drug court to get custody back, whereas like a lot of the women who came in here were in drug court in order to get custody back, but the amount of hoops you have to jump through. And I don't even know if this stuff is, I mean, this is what they tell me, but I, I believe them, but I don't know if it's like, you know, legal thing or just the kind of women, the judge, but it's like, you know, you have to, to get your kids back. Like you had to have a, a car, you have to have an apartment, like all these kind of hoops, you have to have stable employment all the hoops you have to jump through that in some ways is you're supposed to be like a motivator, but it's so stressful. Drugs have intruded on family life. Crack cocaine is the most ruinous drug and many of its victims are poor minority women and children. In San Francisco, for example, the number of black children taken from their parents has gone up 31% in just 30 months. 
And as Mike O'Connor reports in tonight's cover story, the reasons can often be traced to crack mothers. Reaganism and trickle-down economics shattered Social Security infrastructure and criminalized black people for their poverty that the state put them in. Black women were often the target of these Reaganist attacks through their exploitation and state welfare. As many crack-addicted mothers were also single black mothers, they were often blamed for creating the crisis by raising their children in such a doomed territory and failing to surmount the tight grip of addiction, quote-unquote, for the good of the children. Black men never had this burden. They were not asked to halt their addictions or stop dealing for the good of the children. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, the responsibility, like, again, for my one participant, we'll call him Ed, you know, he had to go through it to get his kids back, you know? But at the same time, like, I, I mean, I think he felt a little bit guilty for having to have done that, but at the same time, you know, he's kind of seen as like a hero for doing it. And so, whereas like, I don't, I think that women aren't necessarily seen as heroes if they do manage to defy the odds and work through all the kind of demands of drug court. It's just kind of like, well, this is what you should have been doing since the first place. As a result, it was black mothers who were criminalized and punished for their addictions and poverty, which was an extreme representation of the usage of black mothers' bodies as vehicles for another tragic generation of black people. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one. It's the 10 crack commandments, one. Uh, uh, man can't tell me nothing about this coke. Uh -huh. Can't tell me nothing about this crack, this weed, my hustling niggas. In the second part of this podcast, I'll be discussing the historical development of images of black women in order to fully understand what brought us to these perceptions of black mothers. Representations of black women often stem from old stereotype characters from minstrel shows, the racist plays for comedic value that included white people in blackface. In minstrel shows, three primary types of characters took shape that eventually morphed into the images of black women we see today. That is, the Mammy, the Jezebel, and the Sapphire. Mammy. Mammy. The sunshine beat. To start, the Mammy character is the origin of the Aunt Jemima, the maple syrup mascot. She is a jolly, fat, loyal character who loves her servitude to white folk. Doctor of Comparative Studies Tracy Carpenter says that the Mammy is, quote, fiercely loyal to and nurturing of the white family. The Mammy figure is asexual in the sense that she is antithetical to European standards of beauty, end quote. This character serves as the antithesis of white beauty and respectability. If ever the devil was born without a pair of horns, it was you, Jezebel, it was you. The second character from this era is the Jezebel, who represents the white ideal of black exotic sexuality. The Jezebel is rooted in slavery, and she is portrayed as promiscuous, hypersexual, and manipulative. To be sexualized, she is always depicted with lighter skin tones to be characterized as more physically attractive. <coughs> I'll call you later. May I do something for you? You certainly may. I'd like to see Mr. Stevens at once. I think George is busy. George? That's right. That's Mr. Stevens' first name. See here, young lady. My name happens to be Mrs. Stevens. Do you understand? Oh, yes. I'm terribly sorry. Mr. Stevens, your mother's out here to see you. <laughs> young lady, I'll have you know I'm Mr. Stevens' wife. And don't you ever forget it. You loafer! You hear me? Wake up! Take a letter, sweetheart. I said wake up! Oh, 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 Sapphire! Finally, the Sapphire character. She represents what we now see as the angry black woman stereotype. In her article, Construction of the Crackmother Icon, Carpenter calls her cantankerous, overbearing, and emasculating. She is the idea of the sassy black woman in its original, much cruder form. These images from the 19th and 20th century minstrel shows are the building blocks for the characterizations of black women found in more recent times. In the late 20th century, we begin to see a shift in the images of black women in line with perceptions of welfare restrictions. 
Journalistic exposés about mothers on welfare, gaming the system popularized around the early 1960s. With the expansion of welfare, two new tropes solidified within the media, the welfare queen and the matriarch. U.S. Senator Patrick Moynihan's infamous report, known as the Moynihan Report, released in 1965, quite squarely blamed black women for what it considered to be the decline of the black family. Let me briefly quote from the report, a part where it details the supposed emasculation of the black man. Quote, Consider the fact that relief investigators or caseworkers are normally women and deal with the housewife. Already suffering a loss in prestige and authority in the family because of his failures to be the chief breadwinner, the male head of the family feels deeply this obvious transfer of planning for the family's well-being to two women, one of them an outsider. His role is reduced to that of an errand boy to and from the relief office. The Moynihan Report viewed black women as overbearing heads of house who usurped power from black men, thus tarnishing the natural order of the family. The report attributes the economic precarity of African Americans not to failures of the state, targeted programs of incarceration, or the afterlives of slavery that shaped policing and criminalization of black populations. No, it laid the blame for economic disempowerment on black mothers. The Moynihan Report goes so far as to say that the black community has been forced into a matriarchal structure which, because it is too out of line with the rest of American society, seriously hinders the progress of the group as a whole and imposes a crushing burden on the black male and, in consequence, on a great many black women. It was the Moynihan Report combined with the demographics of welfare that heightened a sense of white fragility and highlighted the black woman as a sort of figure who was responsible for the draining state coffers in welfare support. The fault was shifted from the state, who refused to extend proper health care and social security benefits in an accessible way to black people, more specifically to black women. Patrick Moynihan was serving as the U.S. Assistant Secretary of Labor when he published the report. In this sense, it is most literally the state shifting the blame of black poverty from itself back to the black community. One of the major conclusions you come to when you report is that the Negro family has deteriorated. Now, how is that generalization justified in view of the great growth of the Negro middle class? Well, that, that, that's a, the, the important point. It seems to me that there, that there are a great many Negro Americans, perhaps half uh, the population, is, is securely in the middle class, doing very well, taking care of itself, needing no help from anybody. Thank you very much. But the slums are also filling up with a, a lower class people, unemployed, ill-educated, ill-housed, for whom the cycle of no jobs and bad education and bad housing just reproduces itself in a, uh, and takes its most poignant personal form in the great tragedy of the family lives of these men and women and of their children. Reading through the report, I can see how influential the Moynihan Report must have been in creating the stereotype of the conniving black matriarch. It characterizes black women as the source of all problems in the black community. Additionally, they are represented as overbearing and controlling. The matriarch influences the consolidation of a separate but similar character, the welfare queen by the 1950s and 60s. Here is Carpenter again, quote, The welfare queen manipulates the system and chooses dependency over productivity like the Jezebel. The welfare queen is an image of a black woman with many children who keeps having them in order to obtain more social security benefits for herself while neglecting her children. She has many of the traits of the Sapphire and the Jezebel, but in her contemporary avatar is modernized with the white peril attached to black welfare recipients. In their eyes, the Moynihan Report was right about the matriarchal black family. In fact, circling back to Reaganism again, in his 1976 presidential campaign, Reagan even played on this stereotype by condemning the welfare queen, saying in that- In Chicago, they found a woman who holds the record. She used 80 names, 30 addresses, 15 telephone numbers to collect food stamps, social security, veterans benefits for four non-existent deceased veterans' husbands, as well as welfare, her tax-free cash income, alone has been running $150,000 a year. Black women who access essential state support were manipulative, greedy, and sullied the original welfare recipient, which is the innocent white widow who needed an income to be a stay-at-home mother. 
Black women in society's eyes were undeserving of support because they were at fault for the problem. As mothers, black women were considered to be unfit by these stereotypes, and it is the children who need saving from the mother's choices that will likely doom their futures. We reach our 1980s characterization of the crack mother. We see her in movies, television, and even news reports like the sensationalized Bill Moyer documentary special, The Vanishing Family, Crisis in Black America. It's been a startling change in values. 25 years ago, you would not have heard such things said so freely because they were not embraced so widely. The strong family was still the backbone of black America, and three out of four children had both parents at home. That is true no longer. Most black children are now growing up without their fathers. The result is a world turned upside down as children copy what they see and repeat what they learn. LaDawn said she didn't have a father in her home and doesn't think her children need one. She's not unusual. Half the black families today are headed only by a woman. Clorinda said she could make it on her own as a single parent. She has never been married and is raising her daughter without a man's help. She's not unusual. Today, nearly 60% of all black children are born out of wedlock. Timothy said his children are not his responsibility. He has left them to be supported by their mothers and welfare. He's not unusual either. For LaDon and Clorinda and Timothy, and many more like them in cities all over America, the traditional family no longer exists. It has vanished, and something new is taking its place. Single women and the children they're rearing alone are the fastest growing part of the black population. What becomes of the black family in a world where the values are being turned upside down? The crack mother is a combination of the welfare queen stereotype with a few more Jezebel-like characteristics and the addition of a cocaine addiction. The crack mother is built from countless images propagated by the media of newborn babies who are supposedly addicted to crack upon birth. This, of course, was not true. However, it fed into the narrative that their mothers were so uncontrollably addicted to crack that they had a complete disregard for their babies' lives. The crack mother character is poor, promiscuous in a way that funds her drug addiction, neglecting, cantankerous, manipulative, and a distorted, ugly woman who opposes white beauty standards. Think of Cheryl, the next-door neighbor in Boys in the Hood. Keep your baby up the street. She's gonna get hit one of these days. You got some blow? You got some rock? I suck your dick. Just keep the baby out the street. Exchange your diapers. Girl, I'm gonna smell as bad as you. These traits are reiterations of minstrel show characters, as well as mid-20th century characters of the matriarch and the welfare queen. She is, again, regarded as so neglectful and unsavory that she is unimportant to her child's life. She is a stock character who will never recover, as her child has to grow up already doomed by her choices into a similar life as hers. This image of black women, again, only values them as carriers of these children, and after that, views them as a wasted ill of society. These historical images of black women demonstrate her incapacity to act on her own while at the same time viewing her as the matriarch of the black society who runs the entire socioeconomic status of the community. These are the conflicting images of black motherhood. we introduce the image of the contemporary victim hero mother. The victim hero mother is the mother of a police brutality victim and is fighting for justice for her child. Professor of criminology and discourse analysis Sarah Wright explains that, quote, the term victim hero is oft used to describe the primary victims of 9-11 who have come to be seen as heroes. Victim heroes can also be secondary victims, such as intimate family members of primary victims. The victim hero is characterized by his or her suffering and 
by his or her actions of retribution in an effort to redeem the virtue of his or her loved one or themselves. The figure of the bereaved mother whose child has been a victim of a heinous crime becomes an especially salient one, end quote. While the victim hero in general did not originate as a caricature of black women, in the contemporary era of Black Lives Matter, this is where we see the victim hero figure coming alive. As the victim mother did not arise from historic images of black women, but instead the scholarship of narrative criminology, her traits are inherently positive, such as strength, social justice, sympathy, and passion. However, as this image is being applied to a specific set of black women, the image is slightly distorted as a form of racist sexism which affects white society's perception of the victim hero mother. She is influenced by the historic image of the matriarch, as she represents society's perception of black mothers, who is understood as the chief of all linkages within the black community. This image extends to the victim hero mother as well, as she has the gender-specific social power in the black community that is often exaggerated in the matriarch stereotype. As a result, the victim hero mother is a sympathetic figure, but also one which is relied upon for leading the charge against police brutality within the black community because her blackness gives her the matriarch characterization and dictates that she is in charge of holding together black communities. As a result, while the victim hero mother character is certainly perceived in a more positive light than the crack mother, she is also confined within the historic characterizations of black women that bestow upon her the responsibility for the welfare and survival of the entire black community. The victim hero mother, however, does not look like the historical images of black women that we see in the media. Her image often appears through news story characterizations of her, as well as in movies and television shows like Law & Order. She is often a strong character in response to her son's murder by police brutality, who evokes sympathy and galvanizes social justice. How does this maternal trope relate to the crack mother character of the 1980s? This section of the podcast and the next will compare and contrast these images of motherhood by asking how they emerged. What really separates the crack mother from the victim hero mother, making one a negative figure and offering the other as a savior, is how the black woman's body is criminalized. There was another warning about cocaine today. Crack now has spread to almost every American city. It is a problem in Houston, Philadelphia, Kansas City. Tucson and Sacramento. A new study says that babies born to women who use cocaine during pregnancy are three times as likely to be born with birth defects. They tend to be what we call jittery. They're very, very high risk for cerebral palsy, mental retardation. They are prone to hypertension, strokes, and sudden infant death syndrome. These children, who are the most expensive babies ever born in America, are going to overwhelm every social service delivery system that they come in contact with throughout the rest of their lives. Drugs take away the dream from every child's heart. The crack mother's cardinal sin is choosing to have her baby. In her revolutionary book, Killing the Black Body, Dorothy Roberts argues that since, quote, a woman who has an abortion will probably avoid criminal liability altogether. Women who are punished for drug use during pregnancy then are penalized for choosing to have a baby rather than an abortion. It is the choice of carrying a pregnancy to term that is being penalized. Looked at this way, we can see that when the state convicts pregnant black women for smoking crack, it is punishing them for having babies. During the mass panic responses of white people triggered by the crack epidemic, new reports and images of the crack baby flooded American media. Police in Kansas City, Missouri are searching this morning for a woman who swapped her infant son for $20 worth of crack cocaine. A four-month-old boy was turned over to social workers. The crack plague is showing a new and frightening dimension, the damage it does to the children of crack addicts. 
investigative report tonight, cocaine kids, infants born to cocaine addict mothers. Her mother was so stoned at the time of delivery, she didn't realize until sometime the next day that she had given birth. A false narrative was created that black babies across the country were born with extreme damage and addicted to crack as a result of their mother's choices. Dorothy Roberts explains why this is a false characterization. She writes that the data reported on crack's damage to newborns is not only highly controversial, but is also confounded by general poor health conditions of the mothers that are usually a result of their poverty, homelessness, sickness, physical abuse, and malnourishment. In addition, any abnormalities of babies born to crack were actually often the cause of alcoholism. Some researchers, as reported by Roberts, even found that the harmful effects that are caused by crack are temporary and treatable. Crack was at fault, however, because it fit in with the narrative of the black crack mother. Alcoholism did not. The whole crack baby thing was based largely on one paper published by a guy named Ira Chasnov, a Chicago pediatrician. Ira Chasnov suggested that there were extreme and unique harms from prenatal exposure to cocaine. His research, based on approximately 23 babies, could not, should not, ever have led to the kind of alarm in reporting that happened. At the same time as the white panic surrounding the false narrative of crack babies was popularized, other behaviors that were viewed as criminal were increasingly attached to the crack mother. For example, the crack mother was associated with the promiscuity of the Jezebel through the practice of geeking and freaking, a term for sex for crack exchanges in which the participants smoke crack geeking, then perform sexual acts, freaking, often as a form of payment from the woman to the man for providing the drug according to sociologist Tanya Telfair-Sharp. On the surface level, this seems to be a sort of prostitution exchange, which is perceived by society to be a hypersexual, Jezebel-like act that was certainly criminal by nature. However, as revealed by Sharp, these behaviors are usually incredibly cyclical and difficult to escape because of the stronghold addiction has on those marginalized by the social security system. Social psychiatrist Mindy thompson Fullalove and colleagues also note that sex for crack exchanges are fueled by compounded systemic trauma, often beginning with stigma trauma related to racism or some other traumatic event, then using crack as an escape, then trauma related directly to crack use, like sexual abuse, assault, or the removal of one's children, and then using crack again to relieve this trauma as well. White society views these behaviors as criminal, self-centered negligence and lascivious prostitution. The reality, however, is much different. These behaviors are direct products and consequences of institutionalized racism, causing the social security system to constantly fail black people and disproportionately urban black women as they were often single heads of household. Is this what criminality means to us? Do we understand criminality as being failed by a state system and then slipping into cyclical addiction fueled by racism, sexism, and trauma? This is why society hates the crack mother. She becomes a criminalized figure because of how the state failed her. It was a concerted effort to criminalize black women. And the way that you could criminalize black women, the way you could criminalize virtually any woman, is by saying she's harming children. And that's what they did then. We believe it was the first time a prosecutor charged a woman with dealing drugs to her newborn in the 60 seconds after the baby was born, but while the umbilical cord was still attached. They had no direct evidence whatsoever that, in fact, there was any transfer of anything. So what was being punished? What was the crime? Around the same time, a white nurse named Shirley Brown at the Medical University of South Carolina began drug testing her black patient base. And she would secretly search pregnant black women for evidence of cocaine use. You want to just tell me how you obtain your drugs? Is it, do you buy them? Do you trade it for sex? What are these questions going at, first of all? I mean, who are you going to give these answers to? These answers are for me. She made that available to the police and help the police come to the women's bedside and take them out of the beds, either while they were still pregnant or shortly after they had delivered while they were still bleeding from having delivered their babies. A 
As a result of these images of crack babies, the crack mother is forever labeled with negative traits in a way that the victim hero mother is not. When we think of the victim hero mother, we see images of a grief-stricken mother crusading for justice for her lost child. She is innocent since she is not associated with any criminal acts in the way that the crack mother is by nature. As a result, the victim hero mother's legacy is symbolically positive. She is seen as strong, a leader in social justice, and sympathetic. White society does not extend the same characterization to the crack mother simply because of her perceived criminality. In this way, these images play into the idea of respectable blackness, contrasting with inappropriate ways to be black. According to the historian Kathy J. Cohen, quote, respectability is used to categorize a process of policing, sanitizing, and hiding the nonconformist, and some would argue, deviant behavior of certain members of the African American's community, end quote. The victim hero mother is associated with black respectability, but the crack mother is a user of illicit substances and participates in social ills that the victim hero mother is not associated with. Thus, the contrast between these two figures plays on the divisions between black respectability and the unruly black body. These narratives create heroes and villains within the narrative. As a result, white society understands the victim hero mother to participate in a respectable form of blackness that contrasts with the behavior of the crack mother by vilifying and sensationalizing her. Thus, white perceptions of criminality juxtapose respectable versus unruly black mothers. Ticket to ride, white line highway, tell all your friends they can go my way, pay your toll, sell your soul, pound for pound, cost more than gold. The longer you stay, the more you pay. My white lines go a long way, either up your nose or through your fame. How are the crack mother and the victim hero mother similar images? I find three primary ways in which both images reflect the ways in which white society understands black mothers. One, child loss as a demonstration of a lack of bodily autonomy. Two, the doomed generation narrative. And three, the trapping of the body with the state. To begin, both mothers represent the overarching theme that society views black women's bodies as not their own. Instead, Black women are seen as vessels for an upcoming generation of already doomed black children, which will be discussed next, but without value of their own. Society understands the value of black women's bodies coming from somewhere else. Both received attention in relation to childbirth, but after the loss of their children, the crack mother, for example, is no longer valuable to society. Tanya Telfair Shark argues that, quote, Black motherhood is an institution in and of itself and is a symbol of power in black communities, end quote. Once that motherhood is taken away, where's the crack mother left? Often, according to Dorothy Roberts in Killing the Black Body, the end result is incarceration since, quote, between 1985 and 1995, at least 200 women in 30 states were charged with maternal drug use, end quote. The crack mother is surveilled to ensure she doesn't produce any children, and when she does, Dorothy Roberts notes that she is often separated from her child and imprisoned. Her body is not her own, but viewed as a potential threat to society due to her potential to bring more black children into the world. I was abandoned by my children's father, and I felt very alone and isolated. In my crisis, um, I shared with my doctor that, um, you know, I had uh, a substance abuse issue and he uh, literally turned my case over to the police. I was able to deliver two healthy babies, despite the myth and the uh, scientific misinformation. But my family was being divided and my kids went to long-term relative care out of state. It was devastating. The sons of these women were shot dead by the police. The men were unarmed and no police officers stood trial for their killing. From different parts of the country, the mothers took to the Justice Department and their representatives in Congress with one demand, not to let the police get away with more killings. We pay taxes and we send their children to college and they send our children to the morgue. Something's wrong with that. As for the victim hero mother, she is not a threat to society in the same way that the crack mother is. However, her body fills another purpose that is not her own. She becomes the figurehead of the social justice movement. She becomes a political mascot for the black community and this becomes her sole purpose. 
Like the crack mother, she is not viewed as having a life or future outside of this political symbolism. Jennifer Nash points out in The Political Life of Black Motherhood that, quote, Black women come into focus as political subjects through maternity and through maternal practices that are intimate with loss, grief, and death. Indeed, it is crucial to continue to interrogate why Black women's subjectivity is politically visible only when it stands for the loss of another, a proximity to dead or dying Black, usually male, bodies, end quote. Outside of maternity, loss, grief, and death, the victim hero mother lacks subjectivity. She is a vessel for her Black child, and after his passing, she becomes a vessel for the movement. In society's eyes, the victim hero mother character lacks a life of her own, as she becomes forever intertwined with the unending work of social justice. Of course, outside of these white societal characterizations, Black women who are mothers of police brutality victims are not simply characters who only dedicate their lives to fighting for justice for their children. As Nash describes in her article, Birthing Black Mothers, the victim hero mother character is only a subject as far as the political movement she is tied to, as, quote, black women seem to only come into political view through their proximity to death, end quote. In this way, both the crack mother and the victim hero mother's bodies are understood as not their own. Instead, their children and their relationship to their children is policed and regulated by the state. Vote for the right people, because if we don't have the right people in office, no matter how many laws are passed, or there won't be laws passed, and uh, nothing will be done. Just like in New York, I had like four laws passed that my name was on. The Arabian Anti-Chocolate Law. And I'm trying to make that nationwide. My name is on. That's transparency when the police officers, when they kill our children, when they beat our children up, that we can see their records like we see out, like they see ours. The second commonality, which goes hand in hand with the first, is that the black children that both the crack mother and the victim hero mother carry are perceived as already doomed. Roberts argues that, quote, Black reproduction is treated as a form of degeneracy. They, black mothers, impart a deviant lifestyle to their children, end quote. The children are understood as degenerate upon conception and automatically sentenced to a life of misfortune. For the crack mother's child, they are often understood as cycling through the foster care system as their mother struggles endlessly with addiction and repeated incarceration. Roberts argues in Prison, Foster Care, and the Systematic Punishment of Black Mothers that, quote, child welfare and prison politics make it extremely difficult for incarcerated black women to retain legal custody of their children, end quote, which relegates them to the cyclical systematic violence that is foster care. In fact, at times white society understands this child as following in their mother's footsteps into a similar life of social ills. As for the victim hero mother's child, he usually he, is already dead, a fate that was prescribed to him on the basis of skin color he was born with. This gruesome fate at the hands of the capitalist military-industrial complex is the ultimate image of black suffering, according to Alexis Pauline Gumson, Revolutionary Mothering, which calls back to the poetic themes of Audre Lorde, quote, We were never meant to survive, end quote. The black body was never meant to survive, whether through a social death by a racist social services system or through a literal death by a racist criminal justice system, the future generation that both the crack mother and the victim hero mother carry was doomed upon conception and was never meant to truly survive. Thus, these images of black motherhood represent a perception that black mothers are simply vessels for a future generation of doomed black children and lack a value of their own. Whether you have a toy gun like Tyree, or you have your permit like Casey, or no gun at all like Andre Hill, none of that matters. Their irrational fear allows them to get away with murder. Drug babies, coke babies, crack kids, they have now reached school age. There was hyperventilating reporting in everything from the New York Times to crack kids and Time magazine. And those stories featured pictures of black children. And this, of course, leaves these images of mothers with a third commonality between them. Their bodies being deadlocked in a relationship with the state. 
Both mothers' children were removed by an agent of the state. For the crack mother, it was child welfare services, and for the victim hero mother, it was a police officer. As a result of this removal, both women become trapped in a constant battle with the state that stripped them of their motherhood. The crack mother becomes victim to the narrowing options theory, as Sharp discusses Marsha Rosenbaum's theory, wherein life options become increasingly scarce for a stable home life, employment prospects, and relationships with people who do not use drugs. Furthermore, she, Rosenbaum, argued that minority women who use heroin begin this process with fewer life options initially. Although this theory was constructed with minority heroin addicts in mind, Sharp argues that the same narrowing options theory often lands black crack mothers in a cycle of drugs, abuse, arrest, and incarceration that is nearly unbreakable. Further, the crack mother is also perceived as being in constant battle with child welfare services to retain custody of her child again as they make it explicitly difficult to regain custody. To reiterate a previously cited Roberts quote, quote, Child welfare and prison policies make it extremely difficult for incarcerated black women to regain legal custody of their children, end quote. In this way, the crack mother is further tied to the state through welfare custody battles. As a result, the crack mother's relationship with criminality restricts her body to a perpetual struggle against the state, which, according to white society's perception, is inescapable. The victim hero mother faces this entrapment as well through her constant struggle for justice for her child. As justice for police brutality is seldom reached, the victim hero mother's body is also perceived as being permanently tied to the state. Even if the character finds proper justice for her child, society often still looks to her as a figurehead for leading marches for other mothers throughout the Black Lives Matter movement. As a result, both black mothers are tethered to the state agencies that victimized them, whether through child welfare services and the criminal justice system for the crack mother, or through deadlocked battles with the judicial system for the victim hero mother. And how are you feeling, Sabrina, after the verdict? Um, I was in a bit of shock. Um, I thought surely that he would be found guilty of second-degree murder, um, manslaughter at the least, but I just knew that they would see that this was a teenager just trying to get home. This was no burglar. This was somebody, somebody's son that was trying to get home. You, you, were, you were stunned by the verdict. I was stunned, I, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't believe it. CPS is here to take you out of foster care. No, 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 no. 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 Y'all didn't do anything. No. Take y'all with us. So no. get yourself some clothes. No, I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm not going. Sure. What happened? Where's my no, mommy? Can you call my girl my Mary? Mommy, mommy! Where's my mommy? Muscle wife. Come on, man. Come on, muscle wife. Muscle wife. Overall, this podcast aims to question the ways in which we understand criminality and the labor of black women. The perceptions we have of black women rely heavily on state systems that are out of their control and usually aim to further oppress them. Modifying our understanding of criminality changes our perception of the crack mother from a criminal to a victim of a poor social support system. If we understood addiction and behavior outside of the social norm in this way, we could prevent the cycle of addiction and incarceration. The crack mother is no longer deadlocked to her fate, but instead, we understand her as beginning a journey of recovery from a system that wronged her. Further, our connection to the victim hero mother with themes of the matriarch values her only for her labor to social justice movements. It waters down the life of black women as well as the purpose of movements for black justice. Both of these characters demonstrate the need for understanding black motherhood in a holistic way. For white mothers, we have narratives all over the media of them wearing multiple hats, being a soccer mom, having wine with other friends, having a relationship with a husband, and often a career of her own. For black mothers, society does not afford her these same narratives apart from her suffering. She is perceived as having a sole purpose for her child, and when that is removed, being purposeless herself. She is perceived as simply being a vessel and nothing more for the reproduction of more doomed black people. 
We must examine these images of black motherhood that we consume so often in order to question and change the ways in which we understand black women. In order to bring black women justice, we must understand the crack mother and victim hero mother characterizations as incomplete framings of a diverse and challenging experience of racialized motherhood. We must understand black women as autonomous beings who are capable of producing their own narratives.